We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why... When it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. I released the Major League Baseball shortened season episode last Friday, and I got enough positive feedback. What I really mean by that is no one said, hey, dude, that sucked. So I decided to do another one. This week's topic is how George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees. And last week was really circumstantial, circumstantially driven. With the coronavirus and the league shutdown and no sports going on, I just started reading articles about it and got interested in the topic and decided to do that episode. This week I was thinking about, okay, what am I going to talk about? What do I want to know more about? And one thing that stuck out in my mind, and I believe it was because the Yankees were valued recently at something like $4 billion, 
and I saw a fact that Steinbrenner invested like $150,000 of his own money and then boom, the franchise is worth billions. How did that happen? The real number is 168,000. More on that in a few minutes. But that got me thinking like, how the hell did this dude go from investing $168,000 in the Yankees to billion dollar franchise? So what I did was I started watching some of the documentaries out there about Steinbrenner, the Yankeeography about him, the 30 for 30 House of Steinbrenner. I read some articles about what was going down in the mid-70s about how the transaction happened and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to get into all of that. What really struck me, especially watching the documentaries, was that there's so much love for Steinbrenner among Yankee fans. Two clips I'm going to play here. You'll see what I'm talking about. The Steinbrenner family is the greatest owner in sports. New York fans are the luckiest because we got the Steinbrenners. They'll spend the money so we can have parades like this. Let's do it again. For $1.3 billion to sit in the bleachers and not be able to see Jorge Posada's home run there crushes a lifelong Yankee fan like me. And I don't know what the Yankees were thinking. I, you know, it, it baffles me, baffles me. If George were active and involved, this would have never happened, trust me. Those two things, the fan at the 2009 parade, obviously loves Steinbrenner for spending all the money getting a championship. And then the other common defense of Steinbrenner, and we still hear this, if the boss was alive, XYZ would never happen. What that fan was talking about was opening day 2009 at the new stadium. The cameras were in right center field bleachers. The the bleacher creatures, the, the 20, I believe it's section 201. Anyway, don't quote me on the section, but you know how it was if you sat out there up until a few years ago. You couldn't see basically center field all the way to left field. There was obstructed view from the Mohegan Sun Sports Bar. And Jorge Posada hit the first home run at the New Yankee Stadium to dead center field. And you lost the ball if you were sitting in that section. People were complaining. And what did that fan in the bleachers say? If the boss still had an input, this never would have happened. That is such a common defense and common narrative around George Steinbrenner. Like, How did that guy get that reputation? Players and media perception has changed over the years too. At any point in time, he's been respected, he's been feared, he's been mocked, he's been ridiculed. But towards the end, it was all love. Playing at Yankee Stadium, it's sort of like you're performing on Broadway. Seems like the lights are a little bit stronger here. I've always dreamt of doing it. I didn't know what to expect. It's, it's been above and beyond anything that I've ever dreamt of. And Mr. Steinbrenner deserves a lot of credit. I mean, for what he's done with this organization, the direction he turned it in, bringing back excellence, tradition. You know, he's the reason why we're here today. What will you do with it? Huh? What will you do with it? What I will do to it, I will give it to the owner. I will give it to Mr. George Steinbrenner. And why? Why? Why is that? Because he, he deserved it. Well, he deserved it. Jeter and Mo talking about the. On the last game of the old Yankee Stadium in 2008, outpouring of love for George Steinbrenner. Jeter saying that that Steinbrenner deserves all the credit. Mariano's going to give him the final ball because the boss deserves it. 
That's where it ended up with Steinbrenner. But I'm not necessarily going to go through year by year, decade by decade of what Steinbrenner did and how the perception of him changed because enough stuff has been talked about there. We all basically know how that goes. When the team is winning, the boss is loved. When the team is losing, the boss is hated. That math checks out. That's a pretty easy formula to understand. What I was interested in was how did it all start? How did Steinbrenner go from a businessman in Cleveland to one of the most powerful and influential owners in all of professional sports? A self-proclaimed General Patton. I want this camp run like almost a boot camp. I want it to be strict. I don't want to see long hair if they can't keep it neat. I have nothing against long hair, but I find it difficult to believe that a ball player can just leave alone, can keep it neat when he's playing. I didn't know Mr. Steinbrenner at all. I'd just been traded there. And joking around, I said, our Lord Jesus Christ had long hair, and things seemed to work out for him. And didn't say a word. He says, jump with me. And I walked across the street to the Fort Lauderdale swimming pool, and he says, you can walk across that water. You can wear your hair any way you want. I want them to be representative of New York. I want them to go everywhere and have everybody say, well, they're the New York Yankees. In order for Steinbrenner to buy the Yankees, they obviously had to be for sale. They were previously owned by CBS, Columbia Broadcasting System, who acquired 80% ownership of the Yankees in August of 1964. When they did that, they were still the Yankees. They were coming off decade after decade of dominance. In 1964, they went to the World Series but lost in seven games to the Cardinals. At that time, no one could have predicted what happened over the next nearly 10 years. From 1965 to 1972, the Yankees had a 495 winning percentage, a combined 636 and 649 record, and no playoff appearances. In 1973, which technically they were under ownership of Steinbrenner for the 1973 season, but it was residual effects of the terrible years leading up to that, their attendance dipped below 1 million for the first time since 1945, which obviously was World War II. There was a season going on, but a lot of everyday players were fighting in the war. There was a lot of other things going on in the world other than baseball. Attendance was below a million that year, and it exceeded a million all the way until 1973 when the team was just not good, flat out not good. So CBS acquired the most successful sports franchise in the world, and in under a decade, they had to sell them and they actually sold them at a loss. Originally, it was reported as a $3.2 million loss. It was spun at the time that it was basically breaking even, that different economic factors proved that the CBS didn't actually lose money on the deal, but in less than 10 years, they ended up selling them for what on the books went as a loss. CBS owned them during pretty much some of the worst years of the franchise. At that time, the only thing really going on was the end of Mickey Mantle's career. (laughs) Kind of reminded me of what was going on with the Yankees in 2013 through 2016, where the only thing to look forward to was retirement tours. Not very fun to go to the ballpark. CBS wanted out, and they asked team president Michael Burke to put together a group that would buy the Yankees, and that's where George Steinbrenner comes into the picture. CBS has agreed to sell the New York Yankees uh, to a group of individuals headed by uh, George Steinbrenner. It's important to me, it's important to all of us, and it's particularly important to New York and to the Yankees that the group that gets behind the Yankees at this point have the wherewithal 
and the interest to get the kind of job done that the sports writers, that the fans, that the city and the media uh, in New York deserve. On January 3rd, 1973, CBS sold the Yankees for $10 million to a 12-man syndicate, which included George Steinbrenner. At the time, he was CEO of American Shipbuilding Company. To put $10 million into context, $10 million was, I guess, the going rate for expansion teams at the time. San Diego and Seattle, those baseball teams, those expansion franchises in the years leading up to 1973, sold for $10 million. At the time, the LA Rams football team sold for $19 million. And the Indians, which was Steinbrenner's hometown team and the team that he tried to buy before buying the Yankees, ended up selling for $10.8 million. So $800,000 more than the Yankees actually sold for. And Steinbrenner's initial investment, like I said at the top of the show, was just $168,000, which was about 1.9% of the total sale price, which means he owned less than 2% of the team. By the time he passed away in 2010, his stake had grown to 57%. So when you think about that $168,000 investment at the time of his passing being worth $2.6 billion, it's a pretty damn good investment. There was an article that Forbes, it was published in April of 2019, and they had the valuation at $4.6 billion, which is where the $2.6 billion for 57% stake comes from. But they also have a chart and a year-by-year graphical representation of the valuation of the Yankees, starting with the time Steinbrenner bought the team in 1973. And the chart gradually goes up year-by-year-by-year, and then boom, in the 90s, it takes off like a rocket ship. And the curve just goes straight up to the moon. And here we are, $4.6 billion in 2020. So why was the price so low for the Yankees? I know it's impossible to compare early 1970s life to modern day life. Sports now are so much more ingrained in everything we do. There's so much, they're just more powerful brands. Because even if you look at Forbes' list of Major League Baseball franchises, the Tampa Rays are valued at $900 million. So almost a billion dollars for the freaking Rays. So why were the Yankees going for $10 million at the time? I mean, even Steinbrenner said it. He said at the time, it's the best buy in sports today. I think it's a bargain. But they, he's talking about CBS, feel the chemistry is right. They feel they haven't taken a loss on the team. That's true. He was kind of maybe dancing around exactly why he and his group got it for $10 million. But the reality is that Michael Burke, who I mentioned earlier, was the team president under CBS. He was tasked with finding a group of people to buy the team. And he was led to believe that under the Steinbrenner group, he would remain as a general partner with the Yankees. Other groups were reportedly offering as much as $15 million for the team at the time. But they didn't get the deal. Why not? I'm sure CBS would have loved to sell it for a profit. But Burke wanted it to be Steinbrenner because he thought he was going to be a part of the Yankees going forward. And we'll learn in a, in a few minutes that maybe was misleading for Burke. I mentioned earlier that CBS reportedly lost $3.2 million in the deal. That's because the Steinbrenner group paid $10 million for the Yankees. But included in that purchase price were two parking lots, which the Steinbrenner group 
immediately flipped back to the city of New York for a total of $1.2 million, meaning effectively they paid $8.8 million for the Yankees. So there's differing articles that you can find written around the time of the sale talking about these numbers. And they all say something slightly different, but it seems the consensus now, knowing what we know now, 40 plus years later, 50 years later almost, that it was put out to the public as $10 million sale price. But it did include those parking lots, so it was an effective price of $8.8 million that was paid. Now, you might consider that to be a savvy, quote, the boss move by Steinbrenner. But before we get to what I consider to be the first official Steinbrenner, the boss move, I want to read a quote that Steinbrenner said at the end of his opening press conference. We plan absentee ownership as far as running the Yankees is concerned. We're not going to pretend we're something we aren't. I'll stick to building ships. I can't tell you how much I looked for this quote in audio or video form so I could play it on the podcast. I only found it in a New York Times article and a few other articles that mentioned it. It was alluded to in the Yankeeography documentary, but they didn't play it in that documentary. I don't know. Maybe Steinbrenner had that footage burned. That's something I feel like he would do because it was obviously a bold-faced lie, but I would have loved to heard him say that. And just look at what the emotions were on his face. Like, I wonder if he believed it even for a second. So the Steinbrenner psyche, I think this is very important when you're telling this story of how George bought the Yankees. He had aspirations of owning a a sports franchise and to really be in the public eye from way back. He held football coaching positions at Northwestern and Purdue. In the early 1960s, he bought the Cleveland Pipers, an American basketball league team. So remember the ABL before that thing folded? When he bought this team, he made an immediate splash by signing the most coveted college player in the country at the time, Ohio State's Jerry Lucas, which is a classic Big Stein move, isn't it? Buy the team, go out, get the most expensive free agent you can, get on the the front pages of all the newspapers, be in the headlines. That is Big Stein 101 right there. After the ABL folded, he bought a small stake in the Chicago Bulls. So you could see him constantly trying to move these steps forward, constantly trying to climb the ladder to owning a sports franchise. He also invested in a half dozen Broadway shows. Again, this goes back to being in the public eye more than just being the CEO of his shipping company. And with the purchase of the Yankees, he was finally doing that. I mentioned what was the first the boss move that I think of when I read this story about Steinbrenner buying the Yankees. And it happened very soon after the deal was announced. Six days after the deal was announced, Steinbrenner revealed that one of the other partners was Gabe Paul. Gabe Paul had 30 years of experience running baseball teams. In the 50s and 60s, he was the GM for the Reds and then executive with the Houston Colt 45s and the Cleveland Indians. So if you're Michael Burke and you were the team president, and you have a handshake deal maybe or an understanding with Steinbrenner that you're going to remain in your position and be a general partner and team president with the Yankees, and then you see one of the partners is going to be Gabe Paul, who had all that baseball experience, you realize you had no shot. You're not going to be involved at all. Steinbrenner played you. And then Michael Burke, a few months later, he resigned. 
Some other partners in the deal included Nelson Bunker Hunt, a wealthy oil man, Tom Hunt, a classmate to Steinbrenner at Williams and law partner and backer of Richard Nixon. That'll come into play in a little later. John DeLorean, obviously you know who John DeLorean is, an automobile executive and innovator. You probably know him from the DeLorean car, Back to the Future. Lester Crown, who was an American businessman who had ties to Steinbrenner from Chicago, and John McMullen, an American naval architect, engineer, and later owner of the Houston Astros and the New Jersey Devils. Those were the heavy hitters. Those were the the ones that you can find pretty easily among the 12-man syndicate. I could not find some of the other ones. Maybe it's out there. I just didn't do enough digging. But, But again, those are really the heavy hitters. Steinbrenner, when the team was bought for $10 million, he put up his 168K. That equals 1.9% ownership in the, in the team. How did he go to being a majority owner? Yes, he was considered the guy who bought them. He was considered the owner in a similar way that Derek Jeter is considered the owner of the Marlins. If you Google right now who owns the Miami Marlins, Derek Jeter's name comes up. But that's not technically true. Derek Jeter owns 4% of the team. He's the CEO, so he's the go-to guy. He's going to answer all the questions. He's, he's the one in charge of making the decisions, I guess similar to what Steinbrenner was at the time. But from a, from a legal perspective, who, who on the dotted line owns the most money, what signature is there, who owns the majority of the team? It was not Steinbrenner. It is not Derek Jeter. So how did it happen for Steinbrenner? How did he go to owning a majority of the team? The Yankees reported losses in the first few years after the sale. In fact, only one year in the 1970s did they report any financial profits. That was 1976. That was the year they actually lost the World Series. They then went on to win the 77 and 78 World Series. But even in those years, I guess they lost money. Investors were asked to post an additional $3.69 million to meet obligations. Most of the investors balked at this ask because of the economic uncertainty of this time in the late 70s. And also Steinbrenner had some legal troubles going on. There was he was suspended, I'm using in quotes. I'm gonna talk about that in a little bit. The reason I'm not gonna mention that right now is because it's a really good story and it'll sidetrack us here. But if an investor didn't fund when called upon to post more money, he was diluted by twice the amount of the unfunded capital call. So what does this mean? This how I understand this is Steinbrenner would call up someone for money hoping they would say no, and then when they say no, claim their shares plus some for himself. So he was able to rapidly increase his stake in the team in the early years of ownership whenever someone dropped off. By 1975, he owned around 26.5%. So in two years, in two plus years, he went from 1.9% to 26.5%. Then by the early 1980s, he had a majority, 55%. There's a great quote that I found by John McMullen, who is one of the original 12 partners. He said, there's nothing in life quite so limited as being a limited partner of George Steinbrenner. And that's pretty much how it happened, how Steinbrenner went from 1.9% ownership and really just the figurehead, the guy talking at the press conference who was going to be making the decisions, even if he was lying to himself about being an absentee owner, how he went from that to majority owner one of the most powerful owners in all of sports. There's a few other interesting things going on during this time in in the timeline um, that I want to mention that I didn't really mention while I was telling the story. And one of those is that in the years leading up to the sale, Michael Burke, 
who was the team president who later resigned, was leading a project to modernize Yankee Stadium. He got the city of New York to back a $24 million renovation, which could keep the Yankees in New York, keep them in the Bronx. There was talks of maybe moving them to New Jersey or elsewhere, but that kept Yankee Stadium where it was. It just modernized it and renovated it. As I said, it was supposed to cost $24 million and ended up costing the city north of $100 million. So, classic. The legal troubles that I mentioned. Immediately after buying the team, Steinbrenner was dealing with legal issues. In April of 1974, he was indicted on 14 felony charges stemming from his illegal contributions to the re-election campaign of Richard Nixon. Steinbrenner devised a scheme, a money laundering scheme, through his company, which funneled money to Nixon. Steinbrenner avoided jail time and just paid fines. Guess he hired some really good lawyers. The commissioner at the time, Bowie Kuhn, suspended Steinbrenner. I'm putting suspended in quotes. The suspension was supposed to be for two years. It was really bogus, however. As one article put it, during his suspension, Steinbrenner sat in his owner's box at Shea Stadium and could be seen yelling into the dugout if he disagreed with something manager Bill Burden was doing. And this was obviously the first of two suspensions from baseball that Steinbrenner dealt with. The second one was supposed to be a lifetime ban, but he got out of that as well. He snaked his way back to the league. And it was during those years that he was away from the team that some other people in charge of running the Yankees were able to do some more things like keep minor league players, which Steinbrenner was not too keen on doing. And here we are in 2020. We're in year 47 of Steinbrenner ownership. It's the longest that one ownership group has owned the Yankees, and it's actually the longest tenured ownership in Major League Baseball today. Quite an interesting story, I think, of of how it all went down. I didn't know a lot of those facts. I just know what I know from the 90s to 2000s of people love the boss. People love Steinbrenner, like I said, to start the show. All you can really ask for out of an owner is to spend money on the team to to help them win. And Steinbrenner has always done that. He's always wanted to win. Maybe he hasn't always made the right decisions. He obviously hasn't always made the right decisions. And he's definitely done some shady shit to get where he wound up owning a majority share of the Yankees. And also being suspended from baseball two different times does not exactly look good on a resume, but all the titles look good on a resume and the bottom line, which is very good for the Yankees and the current Steinbrenners is very good. And that's the story of how Steinbrenner bought the Yankees. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're enjoying these extra history type episodes that I'm putting out during the MLB shutdown. I'm recording this on the 26th on Thursday. It was supposed to be opening day. It was bittersweet for everyone. You woke up this morning. It was sunny outside. They were going to be in Baltimore. It was supposed to be low 60s and sunny, beautiful for an MLB opening day. If you logged on Twitter or any social media, obviously everyone was reminding you that it was supposed to be opening day, just in case you forgot. But stay tuned to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. We put out all of our AL East preview episodes And Scott and I have a lot more planned for the MLB and sports hiatus. Obviously, we'll talk about news, any updates to current injured players. Hopefully no one else gets injured. Uh, Any other news as far as when we might see a baseball season again. Keep subscribing. Keep rating and reviewing. Those help out tremendously. And we will talk to you very soon.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.